0: Welcome to Sportsbeat KC, the Kansas City Stars Daily Sports Podcast. It's Wednesday, September 8th, and I'm Blair Kirkland. The football programs at Kansas State and Kansas have a bounce in their step this week. The teams were winners in their first games. The Wildcats impressively so, pounding Stanford. The Jayhawks, after last year's winless season, any victory would suffice, and KU got one over South Dakota. The next task is daunting, however, as Kansas travels to number 17, Coastal Carolina, on Friday. On today's show, we discuss the happy results with beat writers Jesse Newell and Kellis Robinette and ask if the opening weekend results change the outlook for the teams that they cover. And also, since we're talking Big 12, we have to talk realignment. So let's get started with Jesse Newell on KU. And after a break, we'll hear from Kellis Robinette. We're talking with Jesse Newell. Beat writer for the undefeated Kansas Jayhawks. Um, They take a 1-0 record to Coastal Carolina on Friday. Of course, this was a team that went 0-9 last year. What was the last time KU was 1-0? Was it two years ago? I can't remember. Uh, Yes. It had been
1: 677 days, as the ESPN Plus broadcast reminded KU fans, almost every uh, four minutes or so uh, since KU had last won a football game. So, yeah. Uh, obviously, Ku is happy to be one and zero, and, and it also ensures that they're not going to be zero and twelve this year, which was honestly one of the biggest missions of the entire season.
0: Yeah, no, that's and look, they they needed a fourth and ten conversion with about three and a half minutes to go to assure that. I, w- I want to talk about that play in just a second, but let me let me also ask you uh, just about the setting in general. Where fans came on the on the field after the victory. I'm past the point of caring about whether it's appropriate or not for fans to storm a field or a court, as long as everyone's safe and security does its job. I know that look, they were the butt of jokes nationally because that happened, but good for them. Good for them to go out and feel good about a a victory and to celebrate like that. Yeah. I mean, I think you go back to what we
1: just talked about 677 days since a football victory for Kansas. And so you take the moments that you can get them and go with it. And, i got to be honest, Blair, it was a really good student crowd. Uh, I wasn't sure what to expect in that game. The weather was kind of up and down, whether it was going to rain or not. It's Labor Day weekend, so, you know, some students go home. But it was a really good student crowd. Uh, I know that Lance Leipold, after the game, talked about how pleased he was and sort of how he had been a long time since he'd been in a game like that. And you have to think about him, too. Uh, and these sort of new experiences through his eyes because, you know, he coached Wisconsin Whitewater for a long time and won national titles with them, but it's not like they're going to pack a 50,000 seat stadium um, there. And Buffalo, same way. I mean, they had success there, but in your best games, you're going to draw, you know, in the tens of thousands of fans. So for them to have 26,000 to have a student body that was into the game, stayed to the end, which has been a problem for KU in the past. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And you're right with the safety thing. I mean, they think that's most important. And when those fans stream on the field, when those students stream on the field, it's mostly just happy. You know, those, they just want to find somebody to take a selfie with and cheer on and, and be happy about a football game for once in a while. And it's, it's not as much the... Uh, go to the other team and start, you know, ragging on them or abusing them, that sort of thing. So, yeah, a lot of people were very happy on Friday night that Kansas got the victory. And I agree with you. They they did have the uh, goalposts covered like Fort Knox with their security. So uh, those things did not come down, but uh, everything else was pretty much in good order. And, you know, whether people understand the circumstance of Kansas or not, like I'm with you, let the kids go have some fun. And that's exactly what they did.
0: He didn't know the identity of the starting quarterback until the day before. I was wondering if you're going to have to wait till the warm-ups on Saturday to, to find out. But Jason Bean got the call. Is that who you suspected would be the starter?
1: Yeah, I was actually in my bold predictions uh, before the season, and uh, I had to kind of caveat that in there. I said, hey, this first bold prediction could be wrong in like three days, so we could just ruin the whole column, you know, uh, the week before the season starts. But I did sort of suspect it, um, not the week before. The week before, it seemed like Miles Kendrick had a pretty big lead, knowing the system and being kind of the, the workout warrior in the summer, the guy who ever, kind of a leader that everybody was going to. But Uh, It sounded like as things went on and as they had sort of, you know, scrimmage type settings that Jason Bean was really elevating himself because, you know, you can go through practice and this guy knows what he's doing and throws it like this and does that. But then the bullets start flying for real and Jason Bean's speed stood out. And you saw it in the game on Friday, too. I mean, the guy's fast. You know, if if they have a play that's breaking down or something that doesn't go right, sometimes you're just going to have to scramble, take off and run. And that's really the strength that Jason Bean has is, you know, his arm is okay at times. He struggled with accuracy throughout part of the game, but it gives KU something they can play to with that quarterback run game and gives defenses something they always have to be wary of, even if you're doing some very good things in coverage and with the rest of your defense. So, um, Jason Bean's game was, you know, it was fine. It was KU's offense struggled overall. A lot of that was the run blocking and the offensive line and the tight ends and the running backs, all the things you want to put together with that. But, you know, for a first game, um, Listen, KU's had a lot of times in past years where they haven't had a big 12 level quarterback. It's been very, very evident. And Jason Bean for flashes looked the part of a big 12 quarterback. Now, will he get more comfortable with time? Probably. Can he find receivers better? Yes. Can he maybe, you know, try to hit a deep ball every once in a while, to keep the defense honest. Yes to that too. But um, for a first outing, I thought he played fine. You know, I mean, we'd probably have a different discussion a little bit if the, the South Dakota linebacker on that final drive, Hangs on to the interception that Jason Bean potentially threw him and ended the game that way. But you know, um, to the victors go the spoils. KU won that game. Jason Bean led them on a game-winning drive when they really needed it. And so, um, yeah, like I said, I I think a lot of the problems were not him in that game. And so he's got a chance to take this job and really run with it. As we talked about the last podcast, Lance Leipold and Jim Zabrowski, the uh, the quarterbacks coach, they both play the position and they both know what it's like when you look over your shoulder and you're not sure if the coaches have confidence in you. So they want to give their starting guy, a little bit of a leash. And so I think Jason Means got a little bit of a leash and we'll see what he does with it.
0: His best moment came in the fourth quarter with Kansas trailing 14 to 10 and facing the fourth and 10 needed to pick up a first down to keep the drive alive for a chance at victory. And he finds Mason Fairchild over the middle for 20 yards. You've got that play on, on, on the story that you wrote right after the game. Uh, I've been watching The replay several times looked like Fairchild was covered by the defensive end or the outside linebacker who gave him up in zone coverage to a cornerback who didn't get there in time, leaving Fairchild open and being found him. 20-yard gain, and that kept alive. The game-winning touchdown drive. That Listen, that play alone just showed me a little bit of composure and and something that, you know, just a, a big moment in a Kansas game that I haven't seen in a while.
1: Yeah, and 4th and 10. I mean, your game on the line, 4th and 10, there's a lot of pressure with that. I'll have a little bit more on this this week coming. It's a sort of fascinating play because um, I, I wanted to give credit where it was due here. The ESPN Plus announcer, uh, he was a former K-State player, and watching the replay, he was all over this, basically talking about the, the zone coverage that South Dakota was using and basically saying, Jason Mean has to find his tight end in the scene. He said it before the play. He said it before the fourth end. He said he's got to find his tight end in the scene because that's the opening with his particular defense. And if he doesn't make them pay, uh, then th- you know that's going to be kind of a, a real problem for Kansas just because um, you, you know that's really the opening of, of what it was. Uh, Barrett Brooks is was the analyst. Oh,
0: that. yeah, yeah.
1: I I thought he did a great job of diagnosing this. Uh, Like I said, we'll have uh, more on this later in the week. But what's fascinating about that one is you can go back. I asked Jason Bean about this uh, today, actually. And Mason Fairchild, the tight end who caught that pass, uh, he had mentioned after the game that he was wide open on the same play earlier in the game and was kind of waving his arms. and, And Jason Bean didn't get it to him. I asked Jason Bean about it. And he said, yeah, that was the only sack of the game where he didn't trust his linemen, didn't trust his blockers in front of him. And it was a third and eight earlier then, and it was KU's only sack of the game. So it's funny. You go back to the ESPN Plus broadcast, and Jason Bean comes to the sideline for the punt, and Zembrowski, Zembrowski is just in his ears, quarterback's coach just basically saying, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Uh, basically saying, hey, your tight end was wide open. got to throw it to him. Something else interesting about that as well, if you look really closely, Velton Gardner, who's KU's smaller running back, picked up a blitz. He kind of went low on the guy, yep. got a piece of him. Um, but then the guy got the sack anyway. KU switched out on the last play, had Torrey Lachlan, a bigger guy. He used to be a quarterback, but a little bit bigger body. He got the block that needed for that fourth and ten play. So uh, as you mentioned, it's it's learning from a mistake. It's knowing what's going to be there. It's it's synthesizing things, and then it's coming through on a really big play for Kansas when they needed it the most. So I think that shows some growth from Jason Bean, and we'll see moving forward for Kansas' passing game if they can get some of those things figured out earlier so that they're not in the fourth and ten scenario for the game late as they were against
0: South Dakota. Another big moment on that drive was the targeting call on, on South Dakota. What did you see, and how, how did you see it? Yeah, well, this is exactly what Jason Bain
1: brings to you, too. Um, this is a third and nine, believe it was, play. Nothing's working. He scrambles out of the pocket. He calls to one of his teammates to throw a block, and it basically was the definition of targeting. You know what I mean? Uh, it was a defender launched forward with his helmet against a quarterback who slid feet first, albeit very late in the process, but – um, by the letter of the law, it's exactly what the call is and what they're trying to avoid is getting these helmet to helmet, really brutal sort of blows. But uh, as I said before, I think this is sort of um, the added X factor that Jason Bean gives you. If you have a non-mobile quarterback there, you're probably taking a sack. You know, you're probably having to, have to throw it away and have to face another fourth and nine where you've got to get the first down because you're down four points. But That's an example where this isn't going to show up in the stat line for Jason Bean, other than whatever it was a three or four yard rush, but his ability to get outside the pocket to make something happen when things are breaking down for Kansas uh, it allowed them to get that personal foul penalty. And again, that doesn't go on his stat line, but it's something that was only possible because he was in the football game. But, you know, I mean, it's unfortunate sometimes it's not like the defender tried to do it. It's not like the defender was head hunting or something like that. It's just, It's a planted game where he knows it's third and nine. He's trying to stop a guy, a mobile quarterback pretty early in the process, trying to make sure he doesn't gain six or seven yards, trying to make sure he gains two or three. And, Again, Jason Bean's last moment goes feet first uh, with his slide, and because of that, a defender that's propelling himself towards you with his helmet gets you in the helmet, and, and that's that's going to be called every single time, and it's the correct call based off what the rules are. So I know there was a later game uh, in the week where there were, I think, four targeting penalties, and so things are being rethought with um, the rule and everything and, and how safety is sort of applied with this sort of rule. But um, again, by the letter of the law, that's exactly what it was, and I think Jason Bean gets some credit because he turned something – Uh, out of nothing in that particular play, and I think a lot of KU quarterbacks in the past wouldn't have been able to do that.
0: KU gets the win, 17-14 to over South Dakota. Probably a good thing they weren't playing South Dakota State, which throttled Colorado State (laughs) uh, this weekend. So task gets a little more difficult on Friday. How about Friday, Friday to open the season for KU? But task gets more difficult. I'm sure that when Coastal Carolina was scheduled a three-game series. Uh, when this series was scheduled, two in Lawrence and and one in Conway, South Carolina, outside of Myrtle Beach, that the Jayhawks weren't expecting to face a team that ended up, you know, that has improved their program to a point where it's in the top twenty-five. But that's what they get, and they're a what is it? A four-touchdown underdog at uh, at Coastal this weekend. I've actually been to their stadium and seen the stadium, not very big as you might expect, uh, but that program's turned into a you know interesting. Power, and uh, Kansas certainly has its work cut out for it on Friday.
1: Yeah, you mentioned a lot of things. So the the capacity of the stadium is 20,000. Um, they had a good crowd last week, around 16,400, so about the capacity of Allen Fieldhouse. Uh, another thing, you mentioned it. They were one of the newest FBS programs a few years back when Kansas scheduled them. So, yes, that was a very intentional thing to try to, to get a non-Power 5 team For Kansas to play that they could potentially beat. And all of a sudden, you know, Jamie Chadwell, the coach builds up this program and all of a sudden they're top 25 worthy. The third thing, and and I'm going to pull the, uh, the, I could be mistaken thing, but, um, I'm pretty sure that this series was supposed to end last year with Kansas going to coastal, but because of the pandemic, they made it into a KU game and then made the return trip back to Coastal. So this could have been a series that was over with potentially. And then COVID kind of threw its wrench into things. So KU played at home last year and got beat by Coastal again. And then uh, obviously now have to go back to Coastal this particular year. So uh, kind of some weird things going on here, but yeah, first power five foe ever that Coastal Carolina is going to host. So they're going to be ready. They've already called the game a wide out. This is sort of their moment on ESPN two national television and, you're right. It's, it's KU worked backwards from this. I know some people have asked me about this, but the coastal game was the first Friday game um, for KU to sign up for. So it would be on national television, coastal one, and all those sorts of things. So then KU went to South Dakota after that and said, Hey, would you mind playing the opener on Friday? So that Kansas could have a whole week to prepare uh, for its game against coastal. Now coastal even played on Thursday, the week before, so they have actually an extra day to prepare than for, for this game than Kansas does, but Yeah, they have a really tricky offense, uh, you know, like a triple option RPO uh, craziness. Um, They've Grace McCall, their quarterback, is listening on Heisman lists, you know, um, has been really great and efficient in their offense. They just beat down on the Citadel in their opening game to the point where they were resting starters in the beginning of the third quarter. So um, up to 17th in this week's AP poll. So, yeah, this is. This is not the team that Kansas envisioned it was going to play when it originally signed the contract. And this is going to be a chance for Coastal Carolina to get a, a three-game sweep against Kansas, uh, three for three in the last three years. They won 12-7 uh, back in 2019 and then, you know, beat KU 38-23 last year in Memorial Stadium in the season opener in front of no fans. So this is kind of a, a an interesting spot for Kansas to be in as, like you said, a 27-point underdog. And not to mention, too, if you go online and look it up, there were some interesting celebrations that Coastal Carolina had. Um they had a KU Jayhawk pinata in the the visiting locker room one year that they beheaded after one of the victories, and um, so they do some quirky stuff and some some crazy things. But again, uh, when you win like they do, and the program that they built up for them to be twenty seven point favorites against a, a Big Twelve opponent, um, that's saying something. Even if it, it even if it is Kansas, and even if it is you know Lance Leipold's first year trying to get things turned around.
0: Yeah, I remember the pinata. I think it was after the first victory uh, in was. the series. It was. It's pretty funny, actually. ESPN two, I believe is the network for, for this game. And to, if you're wondering about their nickname, the Chanticleers reference the Canterbury tales, and you will find out all you need to know about the shots of coastal Carolina winners of the college world series a few years ago, by the way. So, all right, Jesse, great catching up with you. And we will do it again next week.
1: All right. Sounds good. Blair. Hey, it's
0: Blair. Your subscription helps support the sports coverage of kansascity.com and the Kansas City Star, and that support has never been more important. Please visit KansasCity.com slash SportsBeat Offer to get this special offer. And as always, thanks for listening. Dallas Robinette joins us. The Wildcats coming off, I think, in a pretty impressive 24-7 victory over Stanford in, uh, in Arlington, Texas. I don't know what you were expecting, Callis. It was The line called it essentially a toss-up game, but it was, that game was anything but a toss-up. I was really impressed with the Wildcats.
2: I was too. Um, that was better than I was expecting. I thought they would win, but yeah, I thought it would be close. I think I picked them by a touchdown. And I mean, really, it should have been more than it was 24 seven. Yeah. But if Skyler Thompson's a little bit sharper with his throws, that game could easily be 40 to seven. And if Stanford doesn't get a late meaningless garbage time touchdown, could be four to zero. I mean, that's how lopsided this game was. You know, the offense from Kansas State was about what I figured it would be a uh, good run the ball, kind of up and down throwing the ball. But then on defense, you know, I was uh not expecting that. I didn't expect them to come out with three defensive linemen. I didn't expect them to swarm the ball with three linebackers. I didn't expect them to uh, shut down a uh, a team that likes to run the ball with with five defensive backs playing so far away from the ball, but man, they they really hit Stanford with something they were not prepared for at all with their new defensive setup and uh I mean, I think that's got to give you the most optimism about anything because that was that was what all the experts, including myself, thought was going to be the big question mark this year, was could Kansas State stop anybody? I mean, it, who knows? Maybe Stanford's just no good <laughs> and, and if everybody could stop them. But Kansas State really owned them, held them at 233 yards, 39 rushing, great performance from them.
0: Yeah, and maybe Stanford plays the type of offense that kind of played into Kansas State's strength on defense. I listened both teams had an opportunity to scout their opponent for months, and it looks like Kansas State just took full advantage of that and understood the importance of, of making a good first impression. This was a Kansas State's home game. We noticed that from the way the end zones were painted. You know, at the beginning, um, K-State gave up the date in Manhattan to play this game in Arlington. Boy, they called the the crowd, what, twenty eight, twenty nine thousand, 29,000, but it sounded like it was more just because of all the Kansas State fans in attendance. And they had plenty of uh, reason to make noise. So do you think this is the defensive effort we we can see from Kansas State going forward? I mean, I suspect they will have success this week against Southern Illinois, but... If this is what we're looking at defensively from the Wildcats, it might be time to recalibrate what we think about this team.
2: It really might, and I agree with you. It did sound louder than thirty thousand fans in there. I don't know if it's the acoustics or what, or maybe uh, K-State fans loosened up their vocal cords with some Liquid Courage before the game. But man, they they were loud in there, and uh, it it felt like you know Bill Snyder Family Stadium himself. Just focusing on the defense, I think if there's any anything that makes you think, boy, um, I need to add another win or two on to what I was expecting preseason, it, it's that. They had mentioned they were going to use some three-down formations this season, but nothing nothing like that where they'd be doing 90% of a game, just rotating in and out, just totally overwhelming an opponent. I mean, they legitimately look fast. They looked faster than last year. They tackled better than last year. I don't want to totally overreact because I, I do think they caught Stanford completely off guard. Stanford had two brand-new quarterbacks, and neither one of them looked good at all. Guys were running open against this defense. Nobody could just hit them. It was not like they were the, the 85 Bears. They're a heck of a lot better than the 2020 K-State Wildcats, but they're not the 85 Bears. You know, I want to wait and see a little bit before I overreact too wildly. But I'm over to overreact a little bit. I, I've had them pegged as a 7-5 and five team. I think if this is the defense they're going to bring every week, even if they can come close to what they had, you could maybe think eight, two, maybe even nine if things break right.
0: Well, speaking of catching Stanford off guard, the Deuce Vaughn touchdown run on third and 13, that yes—that looked like the parting of the sea. I, he, <laughs> what a blown defense that was to uh, look at third and 13. You're expecting Skylar Thompson to drop back and fling it. And credit Kansas State for a great play call there. But man. Fifty-nine yards up the gut on third and thirteen to the end zone. Some bad defense, too. Uh yeah. Um,
2: and the funny thing about that was Chris Kleiman said when he heard the call come over at the uh, you know, his speakers there, middle handoff to running back on third and thirteen. He said his first thought was, okay, this this could be a touchdown. Which to me just said, that just, you know, it sounds crazy. You're handing the ball off to a guy on third and thirteen, and not only even bouncing the outside, running up the gut. But yeah, they saw something, they knew exactly. You know, time and situation. They wanted to run that play at some point during the game on a third and long, and they thought it would work. And boy, did it ever! The whole that the offensive line opened up, line of scrimmage. I mean, was unlike anything I'd really seen. You could drive a truck through that. One safety to beat. You know, they didn't have a whole lot of other good third third and long calls throughout the game, but that one was pretty special. And uh, I think that's another positive sign because this offense, you know, when it's really humming, it can pass, but it's built around the run. It's a run-oriented system. They want to give it to Deuce as much as possible. And if you can just do do a simple handoff, you know, HB dive on third and 13 and score on it, you're doing things right.
0: I wasn't going to bust Skyler Thompson for that for that interception that he threw. I thought the Stanford guy made a hell, heck of a play on the that pick in the end zone. What did you think about Skyler's performance? There was some rust to shake off here, wasn't there? And, uh, look, he found the end zone. That was the Skyler Thompson I'm used to seeing when he, on the uh, option keeper.
2: Well, I mean, I would rate it as good and bad, right down the middle. Uh, I don't want to be too hard on him because it was his first game back in in almost a year, but he didn't look great throwing the ball. I haven't looked up the exact stats, but he was 9 of 14, and I think one of them was a drop from his tight end, but the other four incompletions I think were all passes downfield over 20 yards where he just didn't put the ball in the right place. Um, The interception you mentioned there, that was a play he checked into he said today that the reason he th- did that was because it was a one-on-one matchup. He really, really thought it was going to be open in the end zone. Stanford reacted a little bit differently. The receiver admitted, too, he kind of screwed up a little bit. So just kind of a blown opportunity there. I won't eat his lunch for that. I think if you're going to be aggressive, um, you know, if you're going to throw a pick, might as well do it, do it in the end zone at the end of a, a drive rather than like backed up or something where it really hurts you. Um, and he came back and, and made up for it later. Um, I would say the the bad was just he seemed a little bit hesitant to throw, maybe a little bit too reliant on his on his legs. And again, you know, nine to fourteen, hundred and forty four yards, no touchdowns, interception. Clearly not a great day throwing the ball, but you're right. Uh he is a touchdown scoring machine in the red zone. And I don't know what it is about this offense that suits the, you know, the QB run game so well in the red zone, but I mean it's it's their bread and butter. They give it to him on uh, Six-yard keeper, he scores. Bulldozes is a guy in the end zone. They give it to him again later in the game. He scores effortlessly. You can't just judge him based on his passing stats. You have to factor that stuff in, too. So, at the end of the day, two rushing touchdowns makes it seem a little bit better.
0: All right, Kalish, you and I are AP Top 25 voters, and by this morning, we had to have our, our ballots in. I have not seen yours. I, I know you posted something, but I just didn't get a chance to to access it today. Uh, did you consider putting Kansas State in the top twenty-five?
2: I considered it. I didn't actually pull the trigger. I actually, mention them in like my kind of next five-out category. I'm just a little. Stanford just looked very bad. I was not impressed with them at all in this game. Now, if K-State wins their next game, they beat Nevada. They go three and zero. Stanford looks a little bit better later on. Then I'll give them total credit. They just made Stanford look bad. I'll start voting them in. Um, right now, though, I'm just uh, especially without how, how the. Pac-12 North looked in week one, going one and five. I, I'm just not, I, I mean, Montana won at Washington. I don't want to rank every team just because they beat a Pac-12 North team just yet. But they're, they're on my radar. I'm definitely considering them moving forward.
0: Yeah, I have, I have Kansas State in my 26 through 30. When I do my ballot, I try to do 30 to 32 teams every week. And that way, when teams in the, in the final five lose, you kind of know who you can bump up. And I've, I've got Kansas State in a position to get into the poll with a little more success. So, okay, tell us we cannot have a conversation without talking Big 12 realignment. <laughs> that's right. It is um, expansion. Yes, it and that's what it is. Now it's expansion. It's not contraction. It's expansion with the news that uh, invitations soon will go out to Brigham Young, Houston, Cincinnati, and Central Florida. What do we know about... Timetable we don 't know anything for sure because school officials haven't said anything what's a what's a good guess, assuming the four schools accept an invitation, could they be in a conference with Texas and Oklahoma for a year or two? Are we looking at uh, maybe a fourteen team big twelve for next year, or are we looking at more a longer process to get these teams in and to get Texas and o u out me
2: personally i don't think you'll see Texas and Oklahoma. Um, rubbing shoulders with any of these new four schools coming. Now, I admit that's just kind of me taking an educated guess. I haven't talked to everybody in the Big 12 here. Things could work out differently. Um, but I think that the new schools will come in in time to play in 2023, that athletic season, and Texas and Oklahoma will figure out a way to get to the SEC by. So you would have basically two more years of the current Big 12 at 10, then you'd move to 12, and that's what it would be is there a chance they go to 14 before they go to 12 yes but i think the second they add these schools i think that's going to weaken the big 12's case against texas and oklahoma you can't really have a conference poaching another team's schools and saying we want you in right now and then at the same time saying no you two can't leave to another conference over our dead body are you leaving i think that will be enough to broker an agreement some kind of out-of-court settlement here they'll still have to pay a lot of money they'll leave i think that's what what happens the only way it wouldn't is just if Texas and Oklahoma say, you know what, um, there's, there's no big advantage in us. It's rushing. We don't want to pay hundred billion million each right now. We'll just stick it out and, and do this and save a little bit of cash. If that happens, then yes, I could see 14 teams. But I think it's more likely we, we just uh, see two teams leave and four teams come in.
0: How about 14 teams without Texas and Oklahoma? Eventually. Eventually? I mean, maybe. The problem
2: there is just once you start getting into that territory, is there enough pie in each slice to make everybody happy,
0: right? Yep.
2: I think 12 is a good solid number because they're already going to be taking less money than they were previously. You're looking at maybe going from, what do we think, $40 million revenue per year from the conference down to maybe 25, something in that category. I think they would
0: take 25 in a heart
2: I think they would too. And that's probably being generous on my account. Maybe it's a little bit lower. But to add two more schools on top of the ones they're bringing in, And retain that value or increase it, I think would be a little challenging. And I don't see any slam dunk candidates beyond this. If you were going to do it, we both heard Navy would be a school they'd look at, maybe Colorado State, Boise State, something like that. Yeah. I I just don't know that there's enough meat on those bones to make it work. Um, But if somebody comes in and says, hey, uh, it is a good idea. You should do it. Then I think they will. It just, for me, there's just a big drop off between the four they're looking at right now. And I think that's why they're so quick to just go ahead and get this out of the way cuz they know these are the four schools that should be in.
0: I saw that you took a stab at divisions. <laughs> How would you align these uh these dozen? Uh well I
2: I personally like old versus new just so that all the schools that are in the conference now can, you know, be happy competing against the rivals they've had for a long time. So selfishly, I would argue KU, State, Iowa State, Oklahoma State, Baylor, I think that's all all six there. All of the six original Big 8, Big 12, I would put them in one division. And then the others, you take West Virginia and TCU, combine them with BYU, Houston, Cincinnati, Central Florida. Um, that way you got two Texas schools in each each division, old rivalries. Everyone else can make new rivalries. I think that would be the funnest way for fans. But again, that's just kind of my own bias. I think more likely they would take the Texas schools in Oklahoma state and then put maybe central Florida or BYU at them and then branch everybody else in a, in a new north, south division. And I think that's what you suggested.
0: Yeah. But I, I like the idea of the old versus new. And I think you could do the divisions for football only, and then just be sensible about basketball and keeping rivalries together. Um, you know, the way the sec does it in basketball there, it's a fourteen team league, but some teams are they've got permanent double round robin opponents. I think there's no way Kansas Kansas State in basketball shouldn't play twice every year, at least in Iowa State with K State and K U, that that sort of thing. Right. Looks like there'll be time to work it all out though. Yeah, and you're definitely gonna want Cincinnati and West Virginia in the same division no matter what. Yep, yep. It's good.
2: That's the hard thing with divisions, right? I mean, even, even when we had it back in the original Big 12, by the end, people really complained that the Big 12 South was so much better than the North, and it needed to be reworked. So that, that will be a little tricky, and that, that has been the one blessing that the 10-team league has given us, the round-robin in football, the double-round-robin in basketball. It, it's the truest way to uh, crown a champion. One
0: true champion. That's the Big 12, baby. All right, Kelis, Uh we'll spend more time talking about realignment as the weeks progress. And, of course, we will be talking Kansas State regularly. Thanks, Kellis. That'll do it for today. Thanks to our Sportsbeat KC production staff of Beth Welsh, Monty Davis, Jeff Rosen, Chris Fickett, and Savannah Smith. A tip of the cap to Jesse Newell and Kellis Robinette for coming by and talking college football. Links to their stories can be found in the show notes and on kansascity.com. Hey, we got another deal for you you can subscribe to Sports Pass for $0.99 a month. That's right, 99 pennies a month. Sports Pass is the online version of the Star Sports section. You get all the stories that appear in the print editions of the Star, plus additional stories that appear only on the website, and of course, they appear first on KansasCity.com. After three months, it auto-renews at $5.99 a month, unless you cancel. And it's a great time to subscribe. Read about what's going on with the Chiefs, the Royals, the colleges, the soccer teams, and more. How do you get it? Go to KansasCity.com slash Sports 2020. That's KansasCity.com slash Sports 2020. And hey, I wanted to call your attention to something new. Maybe you know about the Stars E edition. That's a replica of the printed newspaper on your screen that comes with your digital subscription. Now there is an updated sports section produced separately that goes along with it. When you open the E-Edition, there's a box in the upper right-hand corner. Click on that, and you can access a sports page. It includes the evening news like Royals coverage and all the baseball games. You know, however you get the star, I want to thank you because you are supporting the best sports and news coverage in Kansas City and helping us produce programs like Sports Beat KC. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back on Thursday with another episode.